0: Matthew chapter 5 and beginning here in verse number 7. The Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Today I'd like to talk about this subject, Blessings come to those with the right affection. So let's pray together and ask God to help us in this time. Lord, I come before you, my heart is refreshed and encouraged in the things of God. Oh, so many discouraging things in this world. But Lord, to the Christian who lives for thee and begins living according to the plan that you have laid out in the scriptures, there's great blessings that come. And I pray that you just help us in this moment to be reflective on what you have for us. May we be obedient obedient. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series called Counterculture Living, living God's way in a godless society. I suppose I've shared this probably already a couple of times, but it wouldn't hurt to rehearse a little bit the context of the passage of Scripture that we're reading. We're going through a number of verses right now known as the Beatitudes, But these verses in verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes, are part of a greater context known as the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. Yes, Jesus was on a mountainside, wasn't in a church setting, but he was there sharing this message with these group of people who truly were hungering and thirsting for something that was different. And when you notice here what Jesus is giving, Jesus is sharing with these people, the Jewish people, who are at a crisis point of their nation. The Jewish people find themselves under bondage to the Romans. Politically, they're under bondage to these people. Economically, they have nothing that is going for them because most of their taxes and everything is going to support the Roman government, very little for themselves. But truly, the greatest thing that they are concerned about is the spiritual realm. You see, in this day, the Jewish people had a group of people known as Pharisees who were overseeing the religious life of the Jewish nation. And the Pharisees weren't just simple teachers of the law, people that knew the law. They were ones who actually went a step or two further And they noted this with the Jewish people that unless you keep the commandments, you cannot go to heaven. And so no wonder why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 where it shocked them that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That shocked them. But Jesus is not sharing follow the Pharisees exactly what they do, and you'll go to heaven. Jesus is letting the Jewish people that he's preaching to know that it is not a righteousness like the Pharisees that was all outward. How sad it is that in Christian circles around our world, we have people who think if they check this box in their life, if they follow this prescription, if they do these things, if they look this way on the outside, they've got it made. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus in this sermon went to the core of the issue. He went to the heart. And my friend, unless you deal with the things of the heart, you're not really doing any business with God at all. Because God desires not to deal necessarily all with the outside. He wants to deal with the inside because once the inside gets dealt with, the outside takes care of itself. All of the habits, the addictions, all of the things that we see, you and I, on the outside, those things will take care of themselves. But Jesus, in preaching, went straight to the heart. And He said, if you deal with these things, and if you follow this way that I'm sharing with you you will have a blessed life. In fact, two weeks ago, we noticed that there are blessings that are given to those that have the right attitude. In other words, to enter God's kingdom, you must come broken, like we sang, poor in spirit. That's the Bible's terminology. You and I will find true joy and comfort when we see ourselves and this world for what it really is. That is, we mourn. There's going to be something on the inside. But blessed are those that not only come with the right attitude, but with the right approach. You see, a true member of God's kingdom will accept the mishaps of life as from God and will trust Him. Those are the meek. And then if you're truly a child of God, you will desire the things of God. We ended last week's message with this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But today I want you to see that blessed are those who come with the right affection. In other words, in verse number seven, there ought to be an affection, a feeling or devotion that we have for others around us, and there truly should be an affection, that is a feeling and a devotion that we have towards our master, which causes us to be pure in heart So let's unravel verses 7 and 8 and see the blessings that come in this area. First of all, according to verse number 7, I want you to note here that those who give compassion will receive it in return. Those who give compassion will receive it in return. Now, we're talking here about the merciful, so let's, let's talk here about this idea of mercy, and let's, first of all, explain mercy. Now, I suppose if you're going to explain mercy, most of us in Christian circles, we throw these two words around, mercy and grace, we throw them around very flippantly, but we really don't think about what they mean. Mercy and grace, we might think they're uh, synonymous terms, but really they're different How are they different? Well, mercy is the act of withholding something bad that we might deserve, like punishment. If I don't get punished for something, I've been shown mercy. But grace is the act of giving something that we do not deserve. When it came to salvation, how many of you are saved today? Would you give me a hearty amen? all right, you're being saved today, guess what happened with regards to God and His mercy and grace to you? In His mercy, He does not give you what you deserve, that is hell. When you trusted Him as Savior, you now have eternal life. But grace here is God giving you something you don't deserve, and that's heaven. Man, that makes salvation so exciting. To know the fact that I'm not being given something I deserve, which is hell, but I'm being given something which I don't deserve, which is heaven. So let's talk a little bit further about mercy. What is mercy? Well, there's a great commentator in uh, uh, Thayer's uh, uh, dictionary, which defines merciful this way. It is the goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted joined with a desire to, to relieve them. So there's two parts to this definition. First of all, there is a feeling of something. There is something that is deep within somebody, but it carries itself out in the form of action. It is the ability of someone to feel something for somebody and see the need, but not just see it, but to actually do something about it. So, mercy is really the outward demonstration of sympathy. You see, the the stress here of mercy, we think more mercy just of feeling. But I want to tell you, when the Bible and Jesus talks about mercy, Jesus does not look at mercy as a theoretical term. Oh, he feels mercy. Mercy. No, no, no. Mercy is, there is the feeling, there is the recognition, but it carries itself forth in the relieving of the needs, the meeting of the needs, the addressing of the issues at hand. You know how amazing it is that mercy is seen in God? Let me share something with you. You don't need to turn there, but if you'd like to, I'm going to go back to the book of Psalm, chapter number 103, and I want to read several verses to you that share about God and His mercy. Listen to this in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Now, how is He merciful? Well, it says that He's slow to anger and He's plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He have not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's mercy. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass as the flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. I want to tell you something. God is merciful. God was merciful in saving me. I'm the first one to tell you here, I don't deserve God's salvation. I don't deserve heaven at all. I don't deserve any of His mercies. But the day that I got saved, I was given a heaping full of God's mercy. And do you realize today as a born-again believer, I'm experiencing that mercy of God every single day. Man, God's patient with me. Wow. I mess up a lot. I'm just confessing to you, I mess up a lot, and I know you do too, because you come by my office and share with me what's going on in your life. You know, all of us here, we go through issues, and we go through problems, and we have things, but how wonderful it is when we come to God on His terms, the Lord is merciful to us. He's patient with us. I love the little story about illustrating God's patience it was told about the, the, uh, the, the, the man by the name of Robert Ingersoll, who was an atheist and really just didn't believe in God and went around and gave lectures teaching people about how he didn't believe in God. And he was so assured of his oratorical abilities that it often would draw loud, large crowds. One evening while he was lecturing, he dramatically took out his watch and here's what he said. I'll give God a chance to prove that he exists and is almighty. I will challenge him to strike me dead within five minutes. First, there was silence. And then some people got to feel a little bit uneasy. But at the end of the allotted time, the atheist exclaimed decisively, See, there is no God. I am still very much alive. And after the lecture, there was a young man that went by this Christian lady, and he said, well, Ingersoll certainly proved something tonight, didn't he? Her reply was quite memorable. Yes, he did. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of God in just five minutes. I like that. That's the patience and the mercy of God. And that's really where mercy is explained here. But let me uh, give some examples of mercy. How is mercy exemplified? Well, whenever you look through the scriptures, you find and can study out the words compassion, the word pity, and you can see that there is something to be said about mercy. But let me give some examples for just a moment If you were to turn, and we're not going to go there, I'll just rehearse the story with you. In Luke chapter 10, there is a great story that most everybody in church is familiar with. It is called the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, here's a particular man that the Bible says one day that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it was a place that robbers were known to be and thieves. And so while he's traveling, he must have been traveling alone. He had gotten robbed and beaten up and basically left for dead. And how interesting, as Jesus begins to craft this illustration, this beautiful story, Jesus says that there was a Levite, a religious man, who walked by. And the Bible says that he saw him. The word Saul is this idea, he looked at him, not just a glance, but he looked and he processed this in his mind. But the Bible says he went on his way. Then there was a priest, again, another religious man, somebody you'd think would stop, and this man, the Bible says, he looked, again, similar word that is used here, he looked at it, he thought about it, but he passed by on the other side and left that man alone alone who needed some help. Jesus shares about the Samaritan. A very unlikely person to reach out to a Jew. And what does the Samaritan do? He reaches down and he picks this man up. He puts him on his horse. He bandages him. He brings him down to a local hospital and and inn, and has somebody care for him and provides for him and says, look, I will be back at a certain time and I will check on him. And if there's anything else that needs to be done, I will take care of it. And it's interesting, the word that is used, Jesus said that this man had compassion on him. Now, let me ask you a question. Did that Levite have compassion or show mercy? No. No. Did that uh, particular priest have compassion or show mercy? No. But the Samaritan did. The Levite and the priest maybe in their mind thought, poor guy, I'm glad that's not me. Hope somebody helps him. Hope something happens before he dies but he doesn't do anything. But instead, the Samaritan has the same thoughts, but actually does something about it. How amazing it is to see throughout Scripture how mercy is exemplified. But let me talk now about mercy being employed. How can you and I show mercy, all right? Explained? Real simple. It is compassion that is in action. It's seen in Scripture. I can go through many other things. The almsgiving in the Bible. As people would give things, they did it to help out the poor, to help out those that were in need. How can you and I show forth mercy? Well, let me just tell you, it's having that compassion, having that pity for the tragedy that somebody else is facing. It's you and I seeing the need and actually responding to it. You see, mercy has no room for selfishness. Mercy is all action. You and I can show mercy by giving the gospel to somebody. You say, well, preacher, you mean giving the gospel to somebody is an act of mercy? Absolutely. If you look through the scripture and you realize the pitiful situation that the lost are in. Let me tell you, the reason most people don't give a gospel track don't witness to their neighbors, don't share the gospel because they truly do not see the need that each lost person is in. If you saw the lost like God saw them, you'd be the best soul winner there ever was of Calvary Baptist Church. If you saw the lost as God sees through in their heart, you would be evangelistic in getting the gospel and showing mercy to them. So I want to tell you, showing mercy is by giving the gospel. Showing mercy is in this, that I don't seek vengeance with somebody. I don't hold a grudge. Instead, I forgive them. That's mercy. You say, well, preacher, you know what? You you just don't understand the hurts that I faced. I don't need to. I look to the Lord Jesus Christ who's commanded us to forgive other people. I look to the Lord Jesus Christ who He Himself has been hurt, ridiculed. uh, 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 Everything has been done to Him. And yet, what did He do while He was on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't seek retaliation. He didn't seek vengeance. But yet, He sought the forgiveness of those around Him. And that's showing mercy here. Showing mercy is helping a hurting child. Showing mercy might be visiting somebody in the hospital. Showing mercy might be giving love to a broken hearted person. Almost every Sunday, there is somebody who comes in. It may not be absolute on their face, but they are broken hearted over something that has transpired in their life. And you and I are here to help one another. Show mercy to them. Oh, we walk by and we think to ourselves, preacher better get done pretty soon because I got to get on to lunch. How about showing mercy to somebody who's in need? And if you're that hungry, just bring them to the dinner table with you and you can talk over the dinner table, okay? But mercy... Mercy is not ignoring a need when you see it. So there's so many different ways to employ mercy, but I've got to move on. I want you to notice here that there is a promise that is given, and that is, where is the mercy extended? Look at this. Blessed are the merciful, and here's how God extends mercy, for they shall obtain mercy. Oh, isn't that Wonderful. Do you realize that every beatitude that is given, there is a promise that is given. And how amazing, when we show mercy to others, God shows mercy in return. When I forgive somebody, can you follow up what's next? God forgives me. When I help somebody else in need, God's going to bring somebody by my place when I have a need. God shows mercy to us, and He extends mercy to us as we begin to demonstrate it to others. Well, that's verse number 7. What a powerful verse here. Those being right with God. But now I want you to notice verse number 8. Those who are right with God will truly know Him. Those who are right with God will truly know Him. Now, how interesting it says here, blessed are the pure in heart. Pure. Pure or purity is defined uh, as something that is not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. It's amazing. I was thinking through the last few days how many products are labeled as pure. Pure honey. Pure orange juice. Pure maple syrup just to name a few. There's a lot of things that are talked about that are pure. But I want you to know when the Bible speaks about purity, it's not speaking so much about the physical realm or that which we hold in our hands. It is speaking about that which is of the heart and being clean or whole before God. And so when we use this word in this context, the word pure, we now start thinking of impurities of the soul just like there are impurities that may affect the body. Now, let me kind of differentiate here between these impurities. There's a lot of physical impurities that we are concerned about in this life. A lot of moral and physical impurities. In our lifetime, we have heard so much about the AIDS epidemic It's estimated that in the United States alone, 1.2 million people are infected with HIV. There are thousands of venereal diseases. There's about 2.53 million people in the United States with a sexually transmitted disease, and that is an increase of 7% from 2017 to 2021. Sadly, more than half of these venereal diseases were reported among those in the age bracket of 15 to 24. We deal today with so many physical impurities, not only of diseases like sexually transmitted diseases, but we deal with things and are concerned about water contaminants. We're concerned, we've heard so much since the hurricane last year, of mildew. We're concerned about viruses. So there's a lot of physical impurities that we think about how those could affect us. But when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not referring to those. Not that Jesus didn't care about those things. But again, Jesus goes to the crux of the matter. He goes to the heart. The moral impurities. We're dealing with things that have to do with the heart. We're dealing with things that deal with the spirit of man. The heart is not necessarily in the Bible that organ in your body that pumps that blood out, though that's what we refer refer to it, and you're true and accurate on that. But the Bible's reference to heart here is the inner man, the spirit of man. Isn't it amazing how the heart is the center and source of all of our life? jesus said in luke six forty five, a good man out of the good treasures of, of his heart bringeth forth that which is good and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil for of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh proverbs 23 verse 7 solomon wrote these words for as he thinketh in his heart so is he you see what's in the heart is going to affect the life Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day for not taking care of the heart. Luke eleven thirty nine. the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward is full of ravening and wickedness. Matthew 23, verse 27 to 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like to whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Oh, these people knew what Jesus was referring to. They would walk through town, and where people were buried were these tombs. And people would paint them on the outside, and boy, they would look beautiful on the outside. But if you walked in, there might be a stench you walk in all you'd see was dead man's bones in there but I want to tell you something what Jesus was getting out with the religious leaders is you're no different than those painted sepulchers you may look good on the outside but your inward is not clean no wonder why Jesus said that blessed are the pure in heart you know as we deal with moral impurities We need to think about ourselves, but I think about what's going on in our nation today. Our country is in trouble. And I'm not talking about because we've elected certain people in office. I could care less about that. I mean, I do care about it, but that's not the crux of the matter. The real focus should be on the immorality and the wickedness that is going on each and every day in our country, and that is being tolerated. Sad. Proverbs 14, 34, this is a verse that you know well. It should be on the screen here. Notice what it says. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, the word reproach in the Hebrew is a very interesting word. Reproach means kindness or goodness. But now, don't get carried away in reading this verse because you think to yourself, oh my, does that mean that sin is a demonstration of God's loving kindness and good do- goodness to us? No. Here's how the verse could be read, and I, I'm not doing any disservice to the Scripture, but listen to this. The verse could say this, righteousness exalteth a nation. Sin is anything but loving kindness to any people. When you look at what sin does to a nation... It begins destroying that nation, devaluing that group of people, hurting that group of people. And I want to tell you, as you begin thinking through in your mind, there are so many things in this country that are starting to weaken this nation. When I think about America today, I think about what our school districts are doing. Does that mean every school district is bad? No. Does that mean mean every school teacher out in the public sector is a bad and wicked teacher? Absolutely not. We've had many of them come through here at Calvary Baptist Church, and I know many good teachers in the public sector, but I'm telling you, those that are running it from the top down are doing everything they can to hurt our children. There are school districts today that are withholding information from parents concerning key issues. To me, this is a non-issue. If I had somebody come to me and say, well, we want to do this with your children, I would stop them right there and say, sorry, they're not yours. But neither are they mine. They're on loan to me from God. And therefore, how I raise them, what I tell them, what I teach them, where I take them, is up to me according to the Word of God, not you. And I know today you say, well, preacher, you know, there's some bigger things that are going on. Hey, you can talk all the politics you want, but I'm telling you, what they have done is they've stepped into our arena. They've stepped into the moral agenda. And it's high time that Christians come back and stand up for what's right. And don't let the arguments go on on Facebook and social media of all these people say, well, you just don't understand and and we we need all of this uh, uh, religious talk taken out and various other things. My friend, stand on the Bible and follow the prescription that God has given to us. Oh, I could go on and on with things that are going on in our country. Abortion today is a blemish on our nation. Immoral behavior. I'm telling you, all of those things, righteousness will exalt a nation, but sin is a reproach. That is, the loving kindness of God starts fading away because there are so many problems in our society. Think of another verse here, Psalm chapter 51, verses 6 through 10. If you know your Bible well enough, you know that Psalm 51 is a psalm that was given by David after he had committed sin with Bathsheba. David had committed such a, a heinous sin, and I don't know how long it was, but it was a long enough period of time that David was affected in his heart. He was guilty before God. But he didn't do what it took to get right with God. And it took a man by the name of Nathan, a prophet, to come before him and said, David, you sinned. You've got to get right with God. David writes Psalm 51 to get clean before God. David writes his Psalm and asks God to cleanse him. To wash him of all the sin, the guilt that is in his life. Look at this passage in Psalm 51. What a powerful passage. Behold, David said, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the inward parts, hidden parts, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, he said. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, I love what David asked for here. There's some things I want to highlight from this passage. David asks that God would take hyssop and would basically purge him with the hyssop. Now most of us have not heard the word hyssop except reading in the Bible and we think to ourselves, well what in the world is that? Hyssop was actually this leafy branch that would be taken and it was used in certain ceremonial things to clean things. For instance, a man that had been affected by a leper, they would take a hyssop branch, and they would wash that man and basically try to purge him, if you will, of any contaminants that he might have from being around that leper. Hyssop was used in various other places, but it was all used in this idea of cleaning. And David says, God, and I don't know if he understood it fully, but it's like, God, take that branch and I want you to clean me thoroughly From the sin that's in me. I love where he says, I want to be clean and whiter than snow. He says in this passage of scripture, he says, I want you to blot out. That is, I want you to erase. I want you to wipe away. And I want you to create in me a clean heart. Make me pure. Some of you are here today. And you have sin in your life. And you've gone on your merry way and you've lived life like you've wanted to live and you've just kind of gone through. But I'm telling you, someday, soon, Lord willing, you'll come to a crossroads in your life and you'll realize that that guilt has been weighing on you and has caused you to make all sorts of decisions. And what God is looking is He's looking for people who come before Him and are pure in heart. Pure in heart. What does that look like? Well, pure in heart. First of all, notice here defining this idea of purity. It means that we are separated, separated. First Peter chapter one verse fourteen to sixteen. The Bible says, "As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy." What's holiness? Holiness is this idea of being separated from things. You know why some of you aren't pure in your heart? Because you haven't learned to say no to sin. You haven't learned to stay away from certain places and certain people that will tempt you to sin. And therefore, your heart has become contaminated. For you to be pure in heart, it is imperative that you begin living a holy life. I tell you, we had churches years ago that would preach regularly on holiness, holy living. And yet we have churches all over America who are doing everything they can to just bring people in. We want people in. We want to fill the pews. We want people in. We don't care how you live. We just want the numbers. My friend, it's not the numbers. It's the group of people who want to do business with God and are holy before Him. God's a holy God. Who you've come to today and who you sang praises to and who you worship to, that God is a holy God and He expects you to come before Him holy. But not only is this idea of defining purity of being separate, but it is this idea of being single-minded. James chapter 4, verse 8, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, he says, you double-minded. You know what the problem with a lot of Christians is? They're very double-minded in all their ways. In fact, the Bible says in the same book, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Many times people are going that direction with the world, and they're trying to go that direction with God. I'm telling you, you cannot have one foot on one side of the fence and one leg over the other fence or the other side. You cannot do it. You either are going to give yourself totally for the world or you're going to give yourself from God. Be single-minded. Now, what's the promise given here? Or I look at it as the depth of purity. Look what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart, these five words in English, for they shall see God. Sometimes when we read this in the Beatitudes, we think, well, shouldn't this one be the first one that's listed? All right, those that are pure in heart, they're going to see God. Well, there is something to be said about those who truly are pure in their heart that someday they'll stand in their glorified body and they'll see God, if you will, face to face. They'll be with Him. What a wonderful day that'll be to be with God. But you know... This verse, as Jesus gave it to these people, and as we read it today, is not this mamby-pamby little thing and some far-fetched idea, oh yeah, someday we'll see God because then we won't apply it to our lives today. You see, those that are pure in their heart today, the Bible says, today they'll see God. You say, am I going to see God face to face? Will He appear at the end of my bed? I'm not telling you He's appearing at the end of your bed. And I'm not talking about a physical apparition where you will see with the physical eyes God. But really what I'm referencing here is that those that are pure in heart have a depth in their life that they know and experience God. You know what happens with most Christians in this world? They have a very nominal relationship with God. They come in, they sing their songs, they do their duty on Sunday, the rest of the week is for themselves, and they really do not know God. But the people who endeavor to be pure in their heart, and who endeavor to be separated, and who endeavor to live holy lives, they are the people who actually will see God. Look at this last passage I'm going to leave, and I'll close. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 4. Look at this passage of Scripture. The Bible says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For He hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Now notice verse 3, what He says. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? In essence, before we go to the next verse, here's what he's asking. Who can come to God to worship with him? Who can be in God's presence? Right where God is, on his holy hill, in his temple. Who actually can approach there? The psalmist doesn't leave us without answering the question. He says... He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. If you want to know God, get right with Him. If you want to know God, keep short accounts with Him. Don't let sin fester in your life. Don't let sin kind of take you away down this path away from God deal with what God is dealing with you about.